everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. It has been said, where ignorance is bliss, how much more than knowledge <laughs> divine. Uh, if I were to tell you that we only know approximately 2% of what otherwise are the proteins that comprise our DNA, the other 98% is still a mystery. Uh, would that sound too reassuring to you? I guess it all depends on what you're talking about. 98% of anything that you don't know about, how could you find any bliss in that? So, the article, Psychology Today, April of 2022. What's hiding in the dark genome? The origins of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder may lie, in part, outside of what we traditionally think of as genes. Schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are among the most heritable mental disorders. Clues to their origins may lie in what's known as the dark genome, recent research finds. A discovery that may offer new hope for treatment. The dark genome sometimes referred to as junk DNA, comprises over 98% of the genetic sequence inside our cells, including everything other than the genes that code the roughly 20,000 known proteins. Past research, however, found that the dark genome can encode proteins, some of which are implicated in cancers and rare diseases. In the new study, researchers conducted a genome-wide assessment, focusing on areas of the dark genome close to regions thought to contribute to human-specific traits and that overlap with areas linked to schizophrenia and bipolar. They identified areas not classified as genes in the traditional sense that can create proteins that appear related to the two disorders. Investigating the dark genome may one day lead to new drug targets for schizophrenia and bipolar, the authors write, perhaps changing the lives of those coping with the highly heritable, highly disruptive disorders. This is written by Cami Rosso, What's Hiding in the Dark Genome, Psychology Today, April of 2022. <laughs> I don't know much about genetics, and certainly with that, I am not entirely sure I understand much about how all the proteins that otherwise are in our body uh, are either released, produced, how they influence what we are, what we become, the biochemistry that makes up our body. But I do believe <laughs> in that case, ignorance is not bliss, it's just played out stupid. <laughs> At least I am. What I believe, though, the article is attempting to capture would be that there's about 98% of these dark genomes, or junk DNA, so to speak, that can be responsible for releasing or constructing <laughs> proteins that otherwise would influence such things as our physiology and in particular 
uh, those conditions, those things that would, would result in the diagnosis of schizophrenia and or bipolar disorder. And though those are completely different disorders, the common link here in context to the article as well as the podcast today is they're heritable. What that means is that they are genetically encoded. And with that, whatever it is, however all of that works at that genetic level with proteins, uh, where it is biochemically then sort of manifest in terms of the brain matter and the body matter and the physiology, as it would then come to those symptoms, behaviors, actions, <laughs> phenomenon uh, that we come to describe or use to describe or are descriptive of the conditions of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, uh, the idea that that all is inherited or heritable means that there's really not much that you can do about preventing at least the risk of that. Uh, maybe you can mitigate that in some manner uh, if we knew more about it. <laughs> and also, as the article suggests, it may not be so much directed toward prevention. Most things are, we have a genetic predisposition for, it's very, very difficult to prevent them. Uh, we can try to take care of ourselves. We can try to do things that we know would, once again, offset that risk or lessen that risk in some significant way. But in the end, those things are there. We've not really had much to do with them except to be the recipient of the gift, if you want to call it that. And over a period of time, Time, a course of development within time, the course of bodily and psychological development within time, we usually begin to see some evidences of that, and therein are left with not prevention, primary care, more an orientation towards secondary and tertiary care, which would be treatment. And how do you treat <laughs> things that are other that simply might be most basically might be instead biochemically driven you treat it with other biochemistry or treat it with biochemistry in some other way to offset that and that would be the great hope but right now the messaging here in the article as well as podcasts as well as my industry in general is that we don't know enough except to treat it with in that category of biochemistry, medicines, medication, and then hope to treat not only the symptoms, but maybe do some corrective things in terms of cause. Uh, whatever it is that is then cause-effect precipitating or is the source of then the initiation, the onset of the disease and disorder, maybe we could do something. <laughs> that would be great hope, right? Prevention again. But if not, maybe early intervention could arrest the progression and then lessen the symptoms and with that add to not only quantity of life, but most importantly, quality of life. 
The conditions of bipolar and schizophrenia are chronic, both conditions. They are also progressive. Uh, as much as any of the diagnosable conditions in the DSM could be seen as a disease or within the context of a disease model, uh, more than probably most or as much of as any, we can say that bipolar disorder and schizophrenia certainly follow very obviously uh, the disease model in terms of progression. Uh, once the diagnosis is made, the belief would be that you may slow down the progression, which really is the worsening of the condition of the disease, but you can't really cure it. And with that, you might arrest the progression of that somewhat through the use of medications, but it's going to eventually have its course. The frequency of symptoms, the severity of symptoms are most likely to increase. And what otherwise, anything additional to that as collateral, uh, social relationships, relationships in general, uh, all the things that go into daily living, daily functioning, uh, adaptability will be significantly compromised and in and of itself then cause additional concerns. Uh, which probably then means it becomes complicated. Uh, these things tend to become, as I believe the right term would be, a complex. More than one condition, there's a certain element of potentiation, magnification of the uh, difficulties as you bring these other factors in. Uh, but in the end, it really creates an almost impossible situation in terms of true treatment even because it just seems to continue to progress and move so quickly and the symptoms other would then be possibly seen as, as so difficult to manage even with medication. The expectation would not be really any sort of restorative property in a significant way. I suppose you could suggest that if a person is severely psychotic, as with schizophrenia, and all that means is hearing voices, having some sort of hallucinatory experience. It doesn't have to be just auditory. It can be tactile. Uh, and with that, some delusional thought. Based on severity, you might say, well, a milder version of that is a return or restorative uh, return to prior levels of adaptive functioning. But then again, it's difficult to kind of truly measure that because if the disorder is progressive, then you're maybe achieving some restoration or return but at the same time, you're also experiencing further declines. And if that is a neutral proposition, once again, maybe that's a win. But it certainly isn't going to be to the alleviation or the removal of the symptoms. They're going to always be there. Maybe they are, once again, more manageable, not only in biochemical terms, but through psychological counseling, 
coping skills, repairing some of the collateral damage, uh, trying to compensate or work out mechanism skills at uh, adjusting and readjusting social relationships, for instance, may improve. Uh, managing the symptoms. Uh, example given, once again, with psychoses, uh, delusional thought, paranoid ideation, to assist the person who's suffering the symptoms. Medication gives us an opportunity. Doesn't remove entirely the inclination to be suspicious of others, if not as the, <laughs> just out and out, as the word would suggest, paranoia, being paranoid, the term would be suggestive of just being simply paranoid, you can say, well, when you start to feel that way, cognitive behavior therapy, speaking to the person, helping the person to understand, uh, again, how to manage their own thoughts, you can say to the person, well, that's probably a delusion. And in that, then, recognizing it as a delusion, you can readjust or make some adjustments as you would be inclined to order your thoughts or have any sort of ability to manage what you think, to changing it from paranoid to uh, less paranoid sort of paradigms, ways of looking at people or things or circumstances or situations that comprise your life. Short version of that is, that's delusional, we need to recognize it and begin to say things, direct our self-talk, our thoughts toward, that's delusional, I don't need to feed into that anymore. I need to try to think more positively about people. I need to remember that I have a behavioral health condition that precludes my ability, at least on the initial read, from seeing it in a positive way of trust and being open. And I need to do something constructively with will and intent, intention to change that. And though that sounds a bit complicated even as I say it, uh, when you go about doing it, it can be very complicated. And the idea of even trusting me, <laughs> who would be in the position of doing the counseling, uh, the psychological counseling, uh, the person may not trust the psychotherapist. <laughs> and so what cred might I have uh, on certain days in certain sort of conditions? Possibly none. I'm right there with everyone else when it comes to their paranoia. But there is some traction we can get, and medicine often affords us that. Same thing with bipolar disorder. Not so much the delusions, although that can happen, uh, but it's not the primary. But the primary would be the mood swings. And with that, then the depression, and or on the other side of that, the hypomania or the mania, as it would influence one's ability to rightly perceive realities of their life, particularly when it comes to decision-making, uh, whether they're really factoring in or seeing everything in such the correct lens 
to pragmatically understand all that goes into any particular decision, whether they can accomplish it or not, whether everything is going to turn out well <laughs> or nothing is going to work in their life. And you could say that's a bit delusional, but it's not necessarily in the category of schizophrenia. But even so, I might do some of that same cognitive behavioral sort of approach. The cognitive part would again be thoughts, self-talk. The behavioral part though would be you need to be with people even if you don't feel like it. Even if your first thought is, as with depression, going back to the bipolar disorder, or they may be currently in a man, uh, excuse me, a depressed sort of episode, they may not want to be with people. They may not want to go out and engage. But there's a, so much good that comes from social dynamic and social dimensions that being with people has a biochemical effect on your body. It releases certain neurotransmitters that we know are responsible for improving our mood, uh, making us, uh, as with connections, uh, available to other people helps us to feel better. Uh, and, and it's not just thoughts. It's not just frame of mind. It's all the things that support thoughts and frame of mind. And in some ways, I'm sure chasing back to the article a bit, it can change not only the biochemistry in the most rudimentary or obvious sort of ways, rudimentary being our understanding of it, but it can affect possibly <laughs> these other factors, the 98% we're not aware of, those proteins, the release of those, uh, in such a way that possibly we might arrest, slow down. Maybe the day will come when we could catch that soon enough, understand it early enough to do significant uh, have interventions that have significant effects either with biochemistry or with talk therapy or combined, the combination of both, before a person even gets to that point. But right now we don't know enough about it to be able to do anything except seemingly so the most rudimentary or basic sort of interventions, which is what I've spoken of heretofore in the podcast today. Want to take a moment, though, before going any further, to remind you, our listener, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So, when it comes to then treatment, we're already believing that it's more a matter of slowing the progression down, trying to improve the quality of one's life even as we understand within the context of the disease model, the medical model, which has that orientation toward disease, that this is likely not only chronic, but in many ways incurable. Now, you could say, well, when you start using the word incurable, it starts to sound awful, and, and certainly there's a, a lot of conditions that are medical or physiological that you can't cure. But, once again... Healthy lifestyle changes, taking the right medications, you can improve the quality of one's life. People can learn. They can learn what's triggering, what isn't triggering. 
family members talking again about that social dimension. And with schizophrenia and even again some aspects of bipolar disorder, the social relationships are such at such risk of being fragmented, going back to that notion of a complex, that people alienate, people who are suffering the disorders, alienate others and become alienated. And in that they isolate. And being isolated without any sort of input from others, not only on a biochemical level, but once again, getting back to this notion that, that if you can find someone that understands possibly what you're going through, as with the individual who's suffering the condition, and can work with that person to change how they think, to continue to remind them to make adjustments in their thinking, to kind of confront or counter what seems like to the person suffering, a very rational premise, but if they have any credibility or any influence at all, having someone in their life versus no one in their life can make all the world a difference. Rather than living an isolated existence, alienated from not only family, but friends, and then with that, help. Because the paranoia, as with delusion, is not only directed toward a certain group, category of relationships, family, friends, it could be even individuals in the medical profession. Once again, it could be me. It's, it's probably not advantageous to think that your psychotherapist is intention to harm you. Or that telling them something is going to otherwise harm you. And though we've mostly focused on the delusional aspects of that, when you are really speaking of, again, schizophrenia, you're also having with auditory hallucinations the possibility that there may be some other source, a voice, not knowing exactly where it's coming from. The person who's again suffering the condition may put a, a identify it as coming from outer space, coming from this or that source, some sort of insertion of thoughts, uh, the government. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities as they're trying to understand that the actual perception that they're hearing a voice, which isn't really they're hearing a voice, it is originating inside of them, but it in their brain and the way all of this is coming together at that, again, biochemical level as the genetic predispositions then sort of manifest themselves in this sort of disease way, the person begins to believe, though, or loses the ability to rightly discern what's inside versus what's outside, as far as internal versus external, coming from within them or from other sources outside of them. So this notion, though, that those voices are actually louder are more insidious, have more access to the person and their choice of opening up and telling and trusting enough to tell others about their experience 
what's going on. Again, the phenomenon that's occurring inside of them, at least that part of them that has that they can access with some conscious awareness. Uh, if they begin to withhold that and they listen to only the voices that are with that flavored by paranoia and intentioned in a negative way to represent some dimension of usually, typically, in a, in a passive sort of way, neglect, in a more active sort of way, abuse, uh, harming self, harming other people, uh, not having access to that person as a professional, not only the psychotherapist, but the medical doctor, the psychiatrist, not having someone who can go in to the home or wherever they may be living, may not be a home, could be under a bridge. Uh, it's believed that a majority, if not um, a significant amount, if not majority of homeless people have a concurrent or co-occurring condition of mental illness. And though it's very difficult to determine which caused the mental illness, whether it was environmental factors, external, or something that, once again, would be genetic or with predisposition that they've inherited or is heritable. Nonetheless, put the two together of isolation, alienation, typically then some challenge to even basic meeting basic physical needs, lack of emotional supports, all of that once again becomes a complex and very much so represents in that disease model manner and way a very clear progression toward eventually less life quantity, but along the way, obviously, the quality of their life is going to be compromised. And the sad part of that is all of that is representative of just how with these conditions much a person with that aspect of alienation as driven by the delusional thinking, the paranoia, particularly again with the psychoses, it goes with schizophrenia, specifically how all of that might be somewhat mitigated if only someone understood and could in some ways engage those persons. I know that that almost implicitly sounds like a violation of choice, uh, informed consent, but generally speaking those are the individuals that if any of their rights are removed from them it would be to that end. <laughs> there, there is a legal process where people still can be committed to treatment if they pose a risk of harm to themselves or others. Uh, again, through negligence or through some abuse may or may not be the appropriate word, but the idea would be self-abuse or with danger or risk directed toward others abusing others, uh, we can step in. The mental hygiene is, is often one of the uh, ways to describe that system. 
can step in and take that choice away from an individual. And in that, their commitment to treatment becomes an involuntary treatment rather than a voluntary, consensual treatment. It takes a lot to get there. That would be most likely the more severe sort of examples of not only schizophrenia and bipolar, but any condition, depression itself, suicidality. I don't want to make it sound like it's just these two disorders. But when you get to that point, forcing someone to go in for care or treatment to stop that either alienation or the complex, the various things that sort of are added to that, that to that person in their particular mental state at that particular time seem to make sense. It's delusional, so it's not reality-based. But to stop that so that we can then begin to once again look at biochemically a way to begin to offer care and restore to some extent an ability to establish enough of a trusting relationship to influence the person, to help them to see the problem in what they're doing, to help them to understand they suffer a condition, a disorder, a disease that requires active treatment and care, to help the family, to help the friends, to help the community, the culture, that they have either been raised in or continue as with that to function in, to know it's necessary to engage. It's necessary to be proactive to do something to help that person. Or it will result in premature death. The quantity of their life will be significantly impacted, either through active or passive threat. And with that, we already should obviously know the quality of their life is going to be compromised. So what this basically means is, though, that understanding, more and more understanding, more and more information, knowledge that provides us understanding in what goes into on a physiological level, on a genetic level, on even this most specific, as with this article, protein sort of consideration of the different proteins and how they affect the parts of the brain. It's sad to think we only know approximately 2% and that 98% of the genetic sequence inside our cells, including everything other than the genes that code the roughly 20,000 known proteins, fall into this category of the dark genome. And further research, further study, obviously is going to be necessary. We're just so far away from having enough knowledge to be able to really do what I think most who enter into the field or the industry that I'm in 
psychological counseling, psychiatry. We really want to help people. But in a very, again, rudimentary or basic way, all we have available would be, once again, the talk therapies in, in a very sort of almost shallow sort of way, the medicines. The most measurable sort of effects when it comes to neurotransmitters. There's just much more refinement that needs to take place. Much more specificity that needs to occur. So that we'll have available to us everything that we need. Genetic mapping, again, an ability to really measure brain chemistry, to understand all the parts of the brain. We're just really so much not there. And it's sad. But the one thing we know we can do is when we identify someone, and this is really left up to the family, or the neighbors, or again, the community cultural sort of element. When you know someone needs help, <laughs> getting them into care is everything as much they may not, they may be implicitly because of the disorder, they, they may not be trusting or they may be even so paranoid. Or even if you move that, that's schizophrenia, even if you move that to just in a more general sort of way, kind of delusional thinking, as in it's not worth it with the bipolar, the depressed person, or with the manic or hypomanic, I don't really need it. Everything's going to be fine. Stepping in and representing objectivity and reality is frontline work. And since most of us in my business can't be out there at that level and we don't have that frontliner sort of response just yet. It's getting better. Primary care, emergency rooms, first responders, they're getting better at identifying these symptoms and then knowing how to make those referrals. But there's no one in a better position than family. And it may be difficult because that person may even not trust you or may believe that your intention would not be the best. But if I can encourage this article in any way can be encouraging of this thought, don't let that dissuade you or discourage you. If you know someone who needs help, these conditions, any of the conditions that may have some lethality, some risk of harm to self or others attached, intervene. And if you don't feel like you can, then call. Call the local law enforcement, call the EMS, call the hospital, because there is a system in place that will step in and assist if you can't, if it's not appropriate, if it's not possible, so that and an individual who is at risk or even might appear to be at risk, can be evaluated and get the care that they need. Psychology Today, April of 2022, what's hiding in the dark genome? I don't want to make it sound like something evil. <laughs> it's just ignorance is not bliss when it comes to conditions. 
of behavioral health concern and the biochemistry and the physiology that underlie it. Knowledge is divine. But the more we know, the more we can shine, so to speak, light to overcome the dark. The more that we're aware of what is in not only the dark genome, but that 98%, the junk DNA, what proteins affect what parts of the brain to create these disorders, obviously the better we're all going to be. It's with that idea in mind that <laughs> once again I bring to you as much as possible these articles because I think sharing it in the way that we do on the podcast is the best way to get information in the hands of the people that need it the most as much anyone else. And it's you, the podcast listener, and your family, and your neighbors. So, I hope that I am achieving at least that end. And with that, I hope that's a bit entertaining along the way for all of you who kind of have a curiosity about mental health or behavioral health sort of concerns. But if you should, please, I want to invite you back to the next edition of Word with Dave Clay. And as always... In the meantime, I want to wish you both health as well as good mental health.